0: Yeah, the fifteen minutes just like flies by, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, super fast. Hopefully, that was okay for you guys.
0: No, it's it's good because like you know, as I said, we're bringing together like twelve of these things. So, in the interest of having something digestible by an audience, right? I don't think that we can go for much longer.
1: Yeah, I know it's going to be action packed for sure.
0: This is Densely Speaking, Conversations About Cities, Economics, and Law. I'm Jeffrey Lynn. I'm an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. Today's show is part two of our special series on urban economics and history, centered on a special issue of regional science and urban economics. The series features short interviews with many of the contributors to this issue on a wide range of topics at the intersection of urban economics and history. Please be sure to check out part one, which is already available wherever podcasts are distributed. Part one featured Walker Hanlon, Stefan Heblek, Martin Bosker, Noel Johnson, and Trev Allen. Today's show features interviews with Brian Beach and Dan Bogert on infrastructure, Bob Margot on industrialization, Alex Wally on innovation, and Catherine Erickson and Alison Scherzer on
2: migration and segregation.
0: Joining me today is Greg Schill. Hi, Greg. Hey, Jeff. What are your thoughts on the project so far?
2: I've really been enjoying the interviews. You know, this issue is action-packed with tons of coverage of urban econ history topics. I enjoyed reading the articles, but now I'm also enjoying hearing the authors talk about them in the kind of short-form format that we have for the series. I've learned a lot. I feel like I'm at an all-you-can-eat buffet, and I'm just going hog-wild. It's great. Great. I'm glad you're enjoying it, Greg. It's been really fun for me, too, talking to a bunch of the leading
0: researchers It's also good on a second listen. I've learned some stuff that I didn't catch the
2: first time around. Definitely. So you were an editor of the journal in which the special issue appeared, which is the Journal of Regional Science and Urban Economics. To the extent you can, I'd love to hear a bit about the motivation of the organizers of the issue and any thoughts that you have kind of at a meta level about how it came together.
0: I'm happy to try to fill in some details. So the special issue was organized and edited by Laurent Cobillon and Stefan Heblich. Laurent is also one of the co-editors in chief of Regional Science and Urban Economics. I don't want to necessarily speak for them, but my understanding is that the motivation for the issue was twofold. One was to document, explore this growing field at the intersection of urban economics and economic history. And the second was to try to fill in a gap. There was a recent handbook of regional and urban economics that came out in 2015. That handbook attempted to summarize kind of the most recent developments in urban and regional economics. It did not have a chapter on history or historical research. So that was one gap that this special issue was trying to fill.
2: Need. So I wonder if you have thoughts, you know, picking up on that theme of growing interest in the field, if you have thoughts on kind of how urban economics has evolved in recent years and maybe where you think it's going.
0: I asked a similar question to some of the participants of this series. On today's show, we're going to hear from Bob Margot, who has an answer something along the lines of growing interest among urban economists understanding historical dynamics. And I think that that's a good description of what's been going on. I think of myself as in that camp. Two related reasons why urban economists should be interested in historical dynamics. So one is that cities change kind of slowly. And so when we're thinking about understanding the economic forces that explain cities or the consequences of spatial concentration... When we look at cross-sectional data, when we look only at a snapshot in time, we're gonna be missing part of the story. A related reason is that a lot of our economic models of cities are static models. They describe what we might think of as like long-run outcomes. And so if I wanna think about testing those models in the data, or if I wanna think about the implications of those models. I think it's better to match up that sort of long run view with long run data. That's a second reason why urban econ should be interested in sort of historical development on a historical time scale.
2: I mean that makes good sense. I think the perspective that I try to bring and that I think legal economics can bring is really around the role of rules and institutions in structuring some of the decisions and then the downstream consequences that show up in these data and you can't really understand a rule without knowing more about how it's been applied and what reactions it's spawned and so on. So I've learned a lot from these papers that you know, the paper that you mentioned by Bob Margot, you know, illustrated a lot to me about the role of zoning and other regulatory, you know, influences on that transportation revolution, or really the absence in many cases of those regulatory forces in the 19th century, when he's talking about contrasted with picture looks like today and the influence on urban form today for the last 50 or 70 years is you know, very illuminating.
0: Yeah, that was a great opportunity for me because Bob Margo has been doing research at the intersection of economic history and urban economics for decades. So a real pioneer of this area. So it was a real privilege to, to speak with him. Enjoy this today's show. First up is Brian Beach and Dan Bogart on infrastructure. Our next guests are Brian Beach and Dan Bogart. Brian is uh, assistant professor at Vanderbilt University. He has an essay called Water Infrastructure and Health in U.S. Cities. Dan Bogart is professor at the University of California, Irvine. His essay is called Infrastructure and Institutions, Lessons from History. Welcome, Brian. Thank you. And welcome, Dan. Thank you. Brian, I want to start with your essay. So, you kind of zoom in on the experiences of U.S. cities with typhoid fever. My first question to you is why typhoid and why the U.S. experience?
3: Good questions. So, the central question that I'm interested in is trying to understand how cities came to improve their sanitary environment. And one of the key difficulties with answering that question is that we don't have great bacteria data to measure overall water quality. And so one of the things that we tend to recognize is that whenever you observe typhoid fever deaths, which are recorded pretty consistently, and the data are available for a wide amount of cities, it's pretty much recognized that those typhoid deaths, at least throughout the 19th century and some of the early 20th century, were largely due to poor water quality. So typhoid fever is a waterborne disease And it was just something that was widely transmitted and regularly recorded.
0: So why don't we get into a little bit about what we learn from the history of typhoid fever in U.S. cities. Let me zoom in on a couple of themes that you highlighted in your essay. So one was that in the U.S., you say that an increase in state capacity among local governments was an important driver of infrastructure investment. What examples do you have in mind? What do you mean by an increase in local state capacity?
3: Yeah, so I think one of the things that I tried to do in this article was to examine how cities came to make these investments in water and sanitary infrastructure. So we know that water mains, sewer mains, pumping stations, all of these things are incredibly expensive. And so If you look sort of historically, these were some of the largest investments that cities were making. And so it's kind of impressive to think about how cities came to be able to invest in water and sanitary infrastructure more generally. Throughout the article, I talk a little bit about these phases of investment. What we end up seeing is that during that first phase of investment, these sanitary improvements were concentrated in large and fast-growing cities. And a lot of those investments were basically motivated by the challenges of increasing city size. And so what ends up happening is that as a city grows, as it becomes more dense, the local water supplies become contaminated. So in those larger cities, it was I think possible to raise the funds that were needed to invest in water and sanitary infrastructure, but they didn't necessarily know exactly which technologies to use. Now, as you proceed throughout the 19th century, you start to see this diffusion process where you start to see increasing investments among smaller cities. One of the things that I think is really fascinating is that just in terms of a number of cities that are undertaking these investments, the biggest wave of water infrastructure investment really occurs basically between about 1880 and 1890 to 1897 there's this explosion of investment among smaller cities which are actually probably better described as small towns places with you know fewer than 5000 people as of 1900 and so i think when i was talking about state capacity what i kind of mean there is actually just this ability for these small towns to raise funds from capital markets to make these investments in the first place. And so it's often asserted that these investments were possible through sort of institutional changes that allowed cities to to borrow or exceed existing debt limits for the purposes of waterworks construction. And so these institutional arrangements paired with sort of a perception that this is not an entirely risky area for lenders to lend their money to. That's what I had in mind in terms of increased state capacity.
0: I think that's a really interesting story to tell. The last question I wanted to ask you, which I think will be a nice segue to Dan's essay, is about the often like slow path to comprehensive access to water and sewerage. Even conditioned on some of these really big investments being made, oftentimes it was, you know, a long period of time before all households had access to clean water and sewerage. There's that paper by like Kesta, Baum, and Rosenthal on the rollout of the improvements in, in Paris. Can you talk a little bit about this slow path and what we can take away from this?
3: Yeah, I actually also sort of saw that connection between our two articles. And I feel like when Dan starts his article, he's kind of talking about how When we look at studies of infrastructure, they tend to fall into these two categories. One category is people that are interested in understanding sort of the economic consequences of improving infrastructure. And then another set of studies that are a little bit more interested in how that infrastructure came to be in the first place. And in some ways, the main theme of my article is to actually bridge those two topics. And in particular, I think what I'm trying to argue is that if you're really interested in understanding the economic benefits of improving the sanitary environment it's really important to understand how those investments came to be in the first place so the article that you mentioned does a terrific job in documenting this in particular what they end up showing is that when you start to see improvements in sewers in paris that there's a decline in mortality kind of in the higher income neighborhoods and it takes a number of years for basically that network to build out before you start to see these improvements in health in the lower income neighborhoods. Warner Truskin also has some work sort of similar in spirit, looking at the United States and in particular focused on sort of black-white mortality differences. And I think the reason that this is important is that if we're thinking about the literature that's interested in documenting the economic consequences or impact of infrastructure investment I think that from a policy analysis perspective, we have this like readily available toolkit that we know how to use to try and examine the impact of a policy. And so we look at things like water filtration or water chlorination. We know when a plant was built or when a waterworks was built. And then we sort of look before and after these comparisons between places that adopt maybe a little bit earlier or later than others allow us to generate some estimates of uh, the economic impact. Now... Maybe deviating a a little bit from the actual network of mains, although that's, to me, the most obvious critique with this type of methodology is that we recognize that mains don't all arrive at once. And so it takes a considerable amount of time for that network to be fully built out. But another example that wasn't really fully discussed in the article, but sort of pointed to, because of space considerations, is actually this idea of chlorination in Jersey City. And so in Jersey city, they're often credited as being the first to continuously chlorinate their water supplies as of 1908. And we think like, why might a city chlorinate its water supplies? Well, we would typically think, well, that's because they have pretty poor water quality. But one of the things I show in that article is that Jersey city's water supplies were not necessarily that bad, at least measured by its typhoid fever mortality rate. After about 1896, it had abandoned the Passaic river, And the typhoid fever mortality rate had fallen. And so when you start to dig into it, it turns out that Jersey City's chlorination plant was actually built to solve a legal issue. Because when Jersey City had initially awarded a contract to build its new water supplies, it specified that the water that was delivered needed to be pure, wholesome, and free from pollution. And so what ends up happening is that the new waterworks is coming from an upstream river, and Jersey City argues that it's possible. That this water supplies can be contaminated. And so, what they wanted was the private firm to build either a filtration plant or to divert sewage away from the river. Those would be incredibly expensive. And so, what's kind of interesting is that the company that was initially awarded the contract ends up in court making the argument that a chlorination plant would actually ensure that the water supplies were pure and wholesome and free of pollution. And so, in 1908, this is basically a court led decision to build this chlorination plant. And it's important to recognize this institutional framework because it has huge implications for someone that's interested in understanding, say, the health effects of improving water supplies, because this is a situation where we wouldn't actually expect the chlorination plant to improve those water supplies.
0: Thanks, Brian. I think that's a good segue to Dan's essay. Dan, I take your essay as trying to provide an entry point to this literature to understand why we see the infrastructure investments that we do. What are the factors that you're highlighting in your essay?
4: Right. So I'm trying to focus on the role of institutions and specifically to sort of narrow that down, the role of democracy and the extent of the franchise. And so... The aim is to say, how did the absence of democracy or its existence or a broadly held franchise matter for the infrastructure sector? And I try to draw on any sort of context in history that might illuminate that. Some of the examples I use are from the the U.S. and cities like Brian just discussed, but others come from other parts of the world and other time periods. And so I go through and I give some examples of how institutions matter. So I can give you a few examples just to illustrate the flavor of it. So in 19th century Britain and also in 19th century Russia, democracy was expanding on a local level. And we can study what happened to infrastructure spending when democracy was expanded or the franchise was extended. And interestingly, infrastructure spending didn't necessarily rise as much as other forms of social spending. And so that was an interesting maybe implication that before democracy was really well-developed, maybe there was a lot more focus on infrastructure and less on other aspects. There's also an interesting case from 20th century Kenya, where when the authors look at when the country had democracy and was thriving and when it didn't, when it had more of an autocratic system, and they show that there was more corruption in infrastructure spending in the autocratic periods and less so when there was the democratic periods. So those are some examples of how institutions matter. And the articles kind of meant to show some examples and to encourage more
0: research to try to understand how institutions affect these outcomes. I sort of see, though, the work that you're describing and some of your own work as trying to kind of connect, you know, oftentimes like in the studies that Brian surveys, right, there's incredible benefits to these Mm -hmm. infrastructure investments that like easily pass these benefit cost tests. But in the real world, oftentimes we see that these things aren't implemented or they're implemented in ways that take a long time for them to get adopted. I see the work that you're describing as trying to understand like why that, why that might be.
4: Right. So I try to stress that infrastructure has sometimes negative externalities as well as positive externalities. And those who experience the negative externalities might try to stop the infrastructure development. And so there's some examples that could generate a slow diffusion of infrastructure If those who oppose or are going to lose from infrastructure have a lot of voice. So that's where the institutions come back into play. Who has voice? in the society, and what are their interests that will ultimately play a big role in what kind of infrastructure gets developed. Kind of going into some topics that Brian talked about in the Southern United States, there's this interesting issue about where sanitation infrastructure, water infrastructure was put in different neighborhoods because infrastructure can be targeted and selected. And there's an issue about whether white neighborhoods got water systems earlier than black neighborhoods and there's some evidence that there was indeed a delay in the delivery for Black neighborhoods. But one kind of interesting thing of some of this research is that there ultimately was a lot of investment in predominantly Black neighborhoods. And this was the decision of, of white politicians, basically, who controlled those cities. And so there's a puzzle about why those investments were made when maybe these Black voters were not really the constituents of the white politicians in charge. So, yeah, there's a lot of interesting puzzles about how infrastructure is rolled out in different economic and social contexts.
0: So, I'm talking to two economic historians. So, Mm -hmm. I suspect that you guys are both sympathetic to the idea that studying history is interesting for its own sake, but also like we want to try to learn something from history that maybe can help us understand the present. In kind of reading both of your essays, I couldn't help but think about some of the infrastructure problems today, not just in other developing countries, but also in the U.S. And so thinking about things like a lead and drinking water pipes, or if housing is infrastructure, thinking about like modern challenges in constructing housing and kind of NIMBY movements or land Mm. use regulations. What are your Mm. thoughts on how can we translate some lessons From history into the present?
4: Well, I would say one thing is we need to consider the institutional context of whatever infrastructure we're thinking about is being delivered. And we have a lot of options, right? You could have central government provision, you could have local government provision, you could have public-private partnerships, right? And At the moment, there's a lot of government provision, in particular funding from the central government, matching grants, and so on. So we might want to rethink that, but we should rethink that if if we do in the context of what are the institutions. Public-private partnerships can work well in some circumstances, but not others. Local governments can do a very good job in some circumstances and not others, So I would say we should rethink the multiple channels by which infrastructure can be provided. And when we do that, embed it in the context and say which one is likely to work better.
3: So I completely agree with all of this. One of the things that I might also emphasize is that I feel like in today's conversation about the state of drinking water in particular, we often sort of see these claims or assertions like, How is it that the United States can be such a rich country, but have such poor water infrastructure? And one of the things that kind of jumps out to me is that if we think about the state of lead mains or the aging infrastructure in the United States, it's in some ways, it's not surprising because I feel like if you look at the history of sanitary infrastructure, a lot of it was reactionary. And so you don't see a lot of proactive investments. And so when we think, you know, yes, we still have lead pipes, it's like, well, that's, you know, this was a decision made a long time ago to invest in a very durable material. And, you know, we're going to continue to use that. But the same logic or maybe institutions that sort of drive us to say, yeah, let's just sort of let it be. I think there is a parallel when you look historically where, you know, we're drinking very poor water. We know that it's poor quality Based off of maybe just, it's not very clear, tastes bad, smells kind of bad, or maybe even sort of this like implicit understanding that, yeah, there's industrial waste and, and sewage in it. But we were kind of really slow to, to make those investments. You know, like when I teach my like undergraduate public economics, and in that course, we talk about like what are appropriate places for government to get involved. Should this be a local decision or a federal decision? And if you think about something like a sanitarian environment, like there's clear externalities associated with it, and it's not really something that there's a lot of different preferences for. Like, I think a lot of us like sewage to be pushed away from us. I think we like clean water coming through our faucets. And so it seems like the perfect example for where we could just say, hey, it's like federally, we're going to make sure everybody has clean water. We didn't do that before. (laughs) And so when you see this new discussion about we're going to make sure everyone has lead free water, to me, it's not surprising that we're running into the exact same sort of frictions. Like, is this appropriate? Why don't we leave it up to the homeowner to replace their lead service line with the new material and sort of that willingness to like, let it be more decentralized in many ways. I I just find it sort of universal and and unsurprising.
0: Yeah, that's very well observed,
3: Brian. Hey, Jeff, I, I didn't respond to your United States question.
0: Ah, uh, uh, do you want to give it a shot?
3: So the reason that the article focuses on the United States is first mostly a space issue. And so I just didn't quite have the space to get into the experience of other countries. Like, I don't think that the United States, you know, like the challenges that it faced were, of course, not unique, and there's an important literature outside the United States as well. I do think that there's probably too much work on the United States, which is not just a problem with this literature, but many literatures. So if you're going to pick one country to focus on, it's often pretty easy to just focus on the United States because there's a lot of literature there. And related to that, that's just mostly my area of expertise. If I think about like, is the U.S. worth studying maybe more so than England or other developing areas at the time? I don't know that that's necessarily true, but I will say that the United States did make a lot of these investments like in relatively later as compared to England, for instance. And so that is slightly helpful in terms of data availability.
4: Can I add something to that bit? And this is sort of a statement about where I think research should go in the future. We know a lot about the impact of infrastructure, a lot. And there's a lot of excellent research on that. We don't know as much about how infrastructure came about. And for example, just focusing on the U.S., it's actually surprising if you read a bit about this, that we don't even really fully understand how infrastructure came about in the U.S. Yeah. and. A lot of the research is sort of one-off context specific, like I'm studying the interstate highway system, or I'm studying sanitation, but people haven't seen that this is actually an integrated research question. People have seen that there's an integrated research question saying, what's the impact of infrastructure? There's a classic set of methods and everybody talks to each other and it's very integrated literature, but this literature on how infrastructure came about is very disintegrated. If you want to use that term. Like, people are not really talking to one another. And saying, you know, what is fundamental in this context? Is it fundamental in another context? So I think it would be fascinating for, and there is research doing this, but more research, just trying to understand a place like the US and saying, how did sanitation come about? How did roads come about? How did ports come about? Ports are a fascinating story at the moment. You know, why are all these ports with all these different regulations? Why is there a port of Long Beach and a port of Los Angeles sitting right next to each other? You know, all those kinds of questions could be studied more systematically rather than as one-off
0: case studies. I mean, I totally agree, right? Like, it just seems like such a key factor in the story of development, right? Not just like, what is the effect of these investments, but how do you get to these investments in the first place, right? Doing that, that's why I
4: was trying to point
0: to institutions because I think yeah. that's
4: been an area yeah. where people have seen a fundamental factor in things like education or yeah. discrimination. Institutions are fundamental. So maybe they're in fundamental infrastructure, but that is only just part of the story. Of course, technology, yeah. development, awareness, science, you know, knowledge about the disease environment.
0: There's a whole bunch of things that are going on that could be more systematically studied. Yeah, Having you frame this is useful because it frames it in a way that I find innately interesting. But then I think the second part of what you said is like, it's not clear to me now, how do I get more of this content? What journals should I be looking for? What conferences should I be trying to attend? Where are the opportunities for community building around the set of questions, do you think? Brian, I don't know if you have some thoughts on
3: that. So I would say that hopefully it came across in the article that at least, you know, I know that we're talking about, like, broad integration of institutions and infrastructure. But I personally find it, like, really impressive to think about how these cities navigated this disease environment in the 19th century. And Dan mentioned just a little bit about it, but it's like we didn't have a firm understanding of the way that germs end up hurting us. We knew something... That sounds familiar. About you know we're operating in this like limited information environment we're undertaking incredibly expensive investments to me i just think truly impressive and ambitious when you look at what these cities were able to do and you know i think integrating those things is of course really important but i think this more like holistic approach is maybe what's going to get us there I would maybe, if I take a step aside and just say, like, okay, where am I going to see this research? I think it's challenging to have an answer to that question. And I think it's because one of the things that is that, you know, we know the methods that we're going to use to measure the impact of of infrastructure, right? I think Dan just said that. But when it comes to like thinking about the institutions and, and how all of these things end up shaping infrastructure to begin with, I think it's rarely like one event. It's not this monocausal thing. There's all these other things that are occurring. And like, how do you map that to say a nice regression that you can present in front of of an audience and get feedback and standard robustness checks and things like that? I just think it's methodologically much more difficult. I do think it's a very important question. And I think it's the natural area for the literature to move. But I think it's something where we're going to have to move outside of our comfort zone in terms of methodology?
4: Brian said that really well. We're going to have to move out of our comfort zone, but maybe at the same time also borrow a bit. In my essay, I tried to emphasize or highlight papers that basically use a difference-in-difference approach to institutions changing. So that would be one way to go. But beyond that, we might have to be open to some other types of ways of identifying The effects of interest. So editors and referees are going to have to be a little bit more open-minded on this.
3: I would say that a natural place to borrow that methodology would be more so from the history field. (laughs) Like I once came across this rant. I talk about it all the time. It was this rant that I saw online from a historian about how economists don't care about identification. And my whole point when I'm reading that is you go to any sort of applied conference, we care way too much about identification. We just call it something else. So when we're talking about identification, we're talking about sort of the statistical framework. When historians are talking about identification, they really want this sort of deep understanding of all these different factors that are at play, and they're sort of framing cause and effect, not necessarily with a regression, but with that deep historical understanding. And so it seems like that's a natural place for us to go.
0: Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Dan. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today, but appreciate you're joining us. Thank you. Our next guest is Bob Margot. Bob is professor of economics at Boston University. His article written with Jeremy Atak and Paul Rohde is called Industrialization and Urbanization in 19th Century America. It's hard to imagine a better team to write on that topic. Welcome, Bob.
5: Thank you so much, Jeff. It's a great pleasure to be here. Let me just start off by saying that I've been in this business for almost 40 years now. I got my PhD back in the early 1980s. And over that time, I've seen just lots of changes in economics. And I think one of the most exciting changes for me, I'm a professional economic historian, is over the last, say, 20 years, the extent to which People in other areas of economics have perhaps rediscovered is not quite the right word, but are making greater use of historical evidence to understand really central questions in modern economics. And I think one of the areas where there's some of the most exciting work over the past 20 years has been in the field of urban economics. That's where I think the sort of bringing of historical evidence to bear has been really important. And I especially am excited by the fact that it's not really coming so much from the side of the economic historians are not as much, but it's also coming from people like yourself, who are, you know, primarily contemporary urban economic economists, but who recognize the importance of historical evidence. And I hope the audience won't mind if I give a shameless plug to the interviewer. I, you know, I think one of the most important papers in this example is one by uh, Bleakley and Lynn, okay, which I, in fact, teach at all levels in my courses, undergraduate and master's classes, I teach it all the time, and in fact, was a very important article influencing the paper that we're talking about today.
0: Wow! Thanks for those kind words, Bob. I really appreciate that. It's nice to know that <laughs> when you're writing something, it's nice to hear some uh, incredible validation as that was. Let me actually just follow up on your comments now, which I, I found really interesting. You know, I know that recently you wrote a review on the rise of economic history economics right. and. It's interesting to hear your views on the evolution of urban economics as becoming more historically oriented in recent years. Do you have any theories like what's what's driving that? Is it data availability? Is it something else?
5: Well, part of it is data availability. I mean, we are living in a period of just extraordinary advances in data accessibility, the rise of big data. And I also think it's just a lot of emergence of sort of testing for causal relationships in economics more broadly. Comes out of more broadly the work of, say, Duran Asamoglu and Robinson and so forth on institutions. But I think in urban, it was always there. There's just a growing recognition of how Cities are very long-lived, and where economic production takes place is, you know, determined perhaps in the distant past. And there are potentially sunk costs, and agglomeration being what it is, it becomes important. And so, to understand where cities are, say in the United States today, and what type of production takes place in them, it, it really becomes important to take a long point of view. So, I think it's a combination of things. I think it's a growing recognition of the role of history. More broadly in economic and data availability.
0: Okay, so let's turn to your article. So your article ties together two very important developments in 19th century America. One is the shift of labor out of agriculture and to other activities, especially in manufacturing. And a second development is the growth of urbanization and the growth of cities in the U.S. Right. How should we think about these two developments?
5: Well, this is an old, old question in economic history, and there's a lot of sort of connections to other areas. My interest in this goes back a very long time, and it goes back to my dissertation advisor, who was the late Robert Fogel. And, you know, Fogel won the Nobel Prize in economics for various things, one of which was his study of the economic impact of the railroad in the 19th century where he measured the social savings of the railroad, which was really the savings in transportation costs above the next best alternative to the railroad, which was a combination of water transportation and wagon transportation at the time. So I was a research assistant on one of his famous articles on this, his presidential address to the Economic History Association. I was the guy who ran all the regressions in that paper. And I always felt there was something about the paper didn't quite sit well with me, and it really had to do with the fact that I thought that the transportation revolution was a causal factor in the rise of cities. And I also thought that cities had agglomeration economies and that there were broader economic impacts of urbanization than were captured by the social savings measure. And this really never came up in any of the debate over Fogel's work. It may have been that I came to this because one of my other fields, actually, in graduate school was urban economics. I took a field in urban economics with the late John Kane, who was, of course, an eminent urban economist at Harvard, where I studied. And so I've always had a really strong interest in the field of urban, even though I wasn't really making my living as an urban economist. And then when I started working with Jeremy Attak and Paul Rohde, we were all interested in the role of the transportation revolution, and also the industrial revolution in 19th century America. And we are motivated by the fact that over the course of the 19th century, the United States develops this extraordinarily productive manufacturing sector. The start of the 19th century, the U.S. is overwhelmingly agricultural. 80% of its labor force is in farming, of the population lives in cities. You know, there are very few cities. A lot of the cities, and this is the relevance of the Bleakley and Lynn paper, are on the so-called fall line. They're located on the fall line. But it's a predominantly agricultural economy, and manufacturing activity is very small scale. Most of it is done in the home or it's small artisan shops. The local shoemaker, the local blacksmith, and so on. Now, by the end of the century, the United States grows its manufacturing sector, and labor productivity in US manufacturing in say 1900 roughly, is twice the level of labor productivity in England, and England is the first country to industrialize. So the United States overtakes the world's leading industrial economy, and so this is a major, major development, right? And. ATAC and I have long believed, and ATAC in particular, this goes back to his dissertation, that it's the rise of the factory system that drives this. It's the shift to what we would call you know, mechanized production that drives this. And there are two components of this. One is, is that the firms are mechanized. They use steam power predominantly in this period and later in the 20th century electricity. And then they're also bigger. They have many more workers. They have an intense division of labor. So this as I said this is an old question and it turns out to be a lot harder to study than you would think because the data that people have used is comes from the census of manufacturing in the United States. And these censuses are not that detailed on the information you'd really like to have. And so what ATAC and I and Paul Rohde have done more recently has turned our attention to a really incredible document from the 1890s. It's called the Hand and Machine Labor Study. It was a study done by the Department of Labor in the 1890s, the predecessor of the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And what makes this study so incredible is that it was a study of production of very specific goods. A product might be a circular saw blade or a a woman's shoe size 5, whatever, very specific goods. And the Bureau of Labor documented all the tasks of production from start to finish, literally, and whether they used steam power or not. And they did it both for the factory and for so-called hand or artisan production. And these data have been known for a very long time, but they were impossible to analyze at the time. And until recent advances in computing, they were impossible for anybody to analyze. So Atac Rohde, and I have digitized these data and been writing papers about them. And... It's very, very clear from these data just how important division of labor is. Even more important, but still important, is you know the shift to steam power. We're able to document this at the level of the individual production operation. So this, plus the fact that we know from our other work that manufacturing's presence in urban areas is growing substantially over the course of the 19th century, sort of leads to a natural question. Why are firms locating in cities at this this time? In the paper that we've written, we're not solving any problems. We're basically going over the previous literature and pointing out, and when I write papers now at my stage of career, I'm often trying to write papers for my graduate students. I'm trying to get them excited about work on this topic or whatever it is, right? Yeah. This paper is trying to point people in certain directions. Yeah. We're sort of reevaluating the questions. Why are firms locating... In cities? Why are manufacturing firms more likely to locate in cities at the end of the 19th century, which we document in in the paper, you know, that this happened? What's the story? And it goes back to basically two questions. One is, what is the role of the steam engine? And the other is, what is the role of a particular agglomeration economy? And that is sort of a denser labor market, your ability to find workers more cheaply, search costs being lower. And then finally, we want to circle back to the transportation revolution because we think that's a missing element in previous work on this.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I I see the agenda setting here, right? Like there's these two big developments in 19th century America, right? Industrialization Mm. and urbanization. Right. And what we would like to know is all of the different ways and channels in which those two things might be linked. I find it particularly compelling, the link via the transportation revolution, right? Right. That's a common factor that we can use as a starting point for thinking about how these two developments are.
5: That, I should say, really is a more recent development in research. And a lot of that is due to my co-author, Jeremy Yeah. So in this particular group of researchers, Paul, Jeremy, and I, there's a lot of division of labor, you know, know, (laughs) who does what. Yeah. Jeremy has tremendous expertise now in GIS. A lot of people have expertise in GIS, but Jeremy developed his expertise almost 20 years ago. So before yeah. a lot of other people did. Yeah. Yeah. And he and I spent quite a lot of time working with maps, right? So he assembled lots of railroad maps. Before you did this on GIS, you know, we wrote a paper back in the 1990s, which we did it the old-fashioned way, or it was done the old-fashioned way. It, was, it wasn't us, but it, the way it would be done is you would lay a, you'd literally lay a map on a table, right, in the library, and you'd like stare at it. You know, and you had to be sure you had a bottle of like aspirin next to you because you, your head was, like, I had, you know, it was like terrible. But Jeremy got really good at, at GIS on his own, you know, taught himself. And so we spent a lot of time constructing the first railroad data set, which was taking maps, 19th century maps, figuring out how to like connect them into modern shape files and extracting a panel data set of the transportation revolution. And then we wrote a paper that was published in 2010 in a journal called Social Science History. It's a quantitative history journal which was a difference-in-difference study, but basically it was a study of the Midwestern United States, and it said, okay, what was the treatment effect of getting a railroad on urbanization? In that part of the world. And, uh, you know, we confronted all the usual problems you have, which is endogeneity of where the train goes. Can we come up with an instrument? These are all questions that you have to address. Now, after that, other people have sort of followed. And I think probably the most important example of this is the important paper by Dave Donaldson and uh, Rick Hornbeck, Donaldson and Hornbeck, which was on basically on Fogel, which was introducing the notion of market access, right? Right. And, you know, our approach wasn't like that. We weren't measuring market access. And even in the current paper we're talking about, we're still just using, you know, does your county have a railroad and so forth. But that's the way the field has evolved. So out of that study, we basically concluded, yes, the transportation revolution did have an effect, a treatment effect on urbanization. And my guess is it had that effect all through the country. OK, whether you can document it successfully to meet the sort of identification criteria that we need in modern economics is a separate question. But right. I think it's there. Yeah. And I really think it interacts with industrialization. And this brings us, say, to the steam engine, which is the other part of this story. As we talk about it in the paper, there is this literature in economic history a while ago now, which tried to argue that the steam engine was a causal factor in urbanization in the 19th century and the logic here is pretty straightforward you know if i'm going to have a textile mill and i'm going to use water power i have to go where the water power is i can't like manufacture a water power site it just has to be there naturally but if i have a steam engine i can locate anywhere i want just plop the steam engine down okay and uh, so i'm footloose it isn't quite correct because i can't run the steam engine on air right i have to run it with fuel And the fuel of choice here is coal, and it's coal that gets distributed through the transportation revolution, okay? Sure. So that's the interaction, I think, that we now think is important in connecting the two trends of industrialization and urbanization. You know, why do firms want to locate in cities by the end of the 19th century? Well, that's because increasingly they're bigger. They need bigger labor markets that recruit a greater division of labor. They are demanding coal, and coal is distributed through the transportation network. So the demand for labor is growing in these places. People are moving there in the usual sort of rose and rowback type model. They would move there, and you would get this, as we call in the paper, increasing connection. So
0: yeah.
5: that's sort of what we're suggesting is going on. Yeah.
0: It's a great overview, as you say, right? Like, I think it sets a very clear agenda for what's ahead. Can I suggest something that came to my mind? Sure. Which is a parallel narrative from a slightly later time period. Mm -hmm. So what I'm thinking about is the rise of the office economy. Sure. And the concentration of offices in downtowns. Okay. So this would have been like the late 19th century and early 20th century. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think you could form a similar set of questions and explanations Mm -hmm. as the context that you're describing in your paper, right? So, you know, the late 19th century, you have a bunch of innovations in commuting transportation. Yes. And you also have innovations in production in the office sector.
5: Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah. So I feel like one could tell a parallel or an analogous story about
5: those two developments. I think that's a great topic for a paper. And I also think it's a feasible topic. And one way you could, maybe you've thought of this already, I don't know. But off the top of my head, one way you could sort of look at this is that the late 19th century censuses start to get much more detailed on the types of workers, right? You know, yeah. prior to 1890, it's just like the number of employees, right? And it, yeah. there's always a question as to who's being covered in these data, in 1890, we start getting questions about production versus non-production workers. Yeah. More yeah. and more detail. And we also have these data for cities. Yeah. So I could imagine a way of sort of taking all that data together and sort of setting up the right sort of panel structure to it. And I think you could probably get at this issue, right? Because yeah. what you're describing, I think, likely varies across industries. Yeah. Yeah. Right, So it, you have to sit down and think about it pretty hard about what the exact identification would be. But I think it's a very similar argument to what we're – we're on the production side, right? Sure. And You're talking sure. about the non-production side, but they're intimately connected because if you have these big, big firms, the nature of sort of the change in demand for labor in manufacturing at this time – it's complicated. Part of it is what labor historians call, quote, de skilling, and that's the substitution of operatives and machines for the skilled artisan. But Larry Katz and I have a paper where we argue it's more accurately described as hollowing out because you get this increased demand for white collar workers and managers to run these bigger operations. So both things are going on. I agree with that.
0: Well, if I don't get around to it, maybe an enterprising PhD student who's listening will help solve that problem. Bob, unfortunately, that's our time. I feel like we could okay, talk for a, I a lot longer, it. but appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for telling us about your paper and your work.
5: Okay. Take care, and have a great day, and I look forward to reading more of your own work, too, as well. Our next guest is
0: Alex Wally. Alex is Associate Professor at University of Calgary. Welcome, Alex.
1: Yeah, great to be here, Jeff.
0: Nice to have you here, too. Your article is called 150 Years of the Geography of Innovation, co-authored with Michael Andrews. First, I'd like to just get a little background on your work in this area. Can you give me a high-level overview of what you've done in this area and kind of what your agenda is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. One thing I've been interested in is knowledge spillovers and how knowledge spillovers make a location more productive. And, you know, my first job I started at the University of California, Merced which was a new campus in California in 2005, just opened. And so there's a lot of discussion about how universities can develop a local economy. And so I've been trying to work to quantify uh, those effects using historical data. Yeah,
0: that's great. I should know, right, you've written a number of really interesting and important papers in this area. So diving into the paper that you wrote with Michael, you and Michael use this very interesting, relatively new database on geolocated U.S. patents issued from 1836 to 2016. So more than 150 years to describe several what I would call stylized facts about the geographical dynamics of invention in the US. What do you find when you look at this, these data?
1: Yeah. So our motivation was looking at some of the recent trends. So, you know, there's been a lot of work looking at data from the 1970s to today and just finding that innovation is becoming more and more concentrated in a few areas, you know, places like Silicon Valley are kind of way ahead and they're sort of growing in their dominance. And our question was, what about historically? What if we go back in time? Does that trend sort of continue to go back in time where, you know, there's just less and less dominance of these big areas historically? Or is it sort of non-monotonic? Does it really change over time? And what we found surprised us. We thought that those trends were just kind of continuing backwards. But if you look at some of the data from the post-Civil War period in the United States, there's kind of similar levels of concentrations today. So we see that a lot of few large areas really dominate the innovation landscape. So that was, you know, one thing we found. Another thing we found was really that a lot of the patterns and certainly recent data are really driven by these elite locations. So patenting is extremely geographically concentrated. There's a few locations that really lead the way. And so, you know, what happens with those places really matters. And the third thing we found in the paper was this kind of question of persistence. And Jeff, I know this is a question you've worked on as well. I'm just trying to think about how does persistence change over time? You know, we have this idea in the tech sector. You know, the early first mover advantage. Amazon's kind of the first company in, in e-commerce and they have this advantage by being first. Do we see the same thing in kind of urban data? Um, there's a famous quote by Daniel Patrick Moynihan saying, "If you want to build a great city, build a great university, and wait 200 years." And so, this question about persistence. What we found is that persistence is definitely present in the data. So areas that are kind of leading innovators historically are also leading innovators today but it does seem to be declining. The extent of persistence, how much persistence there is, it seems like before World War II, uh, persistence was actually a bigger fact. And then today, sort of in a more recent time period, it's becoming less precise. And so kind of fits in with this debate about you know, what's going to happen to Silicon Valley in the future? Are they going to continue to be a leader? Or are people going to move to places like Texas and things like that?
0: Yeah. So I think it's a really interesting exercise to kind of look at history to try to understand the context of kind of the spatial patterns and invention we see today i understand that this is like totally outside of the scope of what you guys are doing but i can't help thinking about what is the role of industry dynamics versus say like geographical factors you mentioned how the location of invention has shifted over time and part of that you could trace to like, oh, there was a lot of innovation in automobiles in the early 20th century. And we found a lot of those patents in like the upper Midwest. And of course, today it's Silicon Valley, right, is is the leader. And so there's the story about industry dynamics there. And then in terms of the persistence, you know, I can't help but think that, you know, are things like current land use regulations, policy choking off continued growth in places in the Bay Area?
1: I think that what we can say in the paper is we kind of document these trends. We don't have a great feel for the driving forces. So we thought a lot about kind of the inputs and kind of human capital, the mobility of human capital. Also, you know, government policy and things like that also seem relevant. One thing that's unique about the United States is how decentralized government innovation really is. Like if you look somewhere like France, it's all happening in Paris. But the United States, we have research universities all over the place. We have labs all over the place. So it, it does seem like it's sort of more decentralized. I don't have a great sense of land use regulations, how that's related to innovation. I mean, I think that most companies heavily involved in innovation are really focused on the cost of human capital, the availability of human capital. And I think that innovation is not really that land intense. Like it's not super land intense compared to some other competing uses maybe, but yeah, I mean, I think it'd be an open question. I don't really know the answer.
2: If I could jump in with a, with a question. So you're using patents as a proxy for innovation and There's a little bit of a cottage literature on on that. I wondered if you could speak, of course, that's not the focus of the paper, but if you could speak a little bit to your choice of patents and sort of any limitations you perceive there for external validity and other thoughts, other measures maybe of of innovation that might be worth looking at.
1: Patents are the ones that most people use because it's accessible and it's easy to use data. And I think what's novel, what we're able to do is really the historic kind of geolocating of patents. So, you know, the historic data has been around for a while, but we didn't know kind of where and when. These innovations happen. I think, yeah, patenting definitely has some limitations. You know, there's changes in patent policy, for example, that can really matter. So in the 1980s, you know, patents get strengthened through a few different legal decisions. They become more valuable. And so people are patenting things more often. There's also different technologies are patentable or not. So, for example, software is an area that's generally hard to enforce patents. There's changes in agricultural technology. So you could not, you know, initially sort of new genes, new neoplasms and things like that in agriculture. Then we do get kind of genetically modified organisms become patentable. So those things definitely matter. It's hard for us to say, to be honest, how well those map. One thing you can do is thinking about like productivity and productivity and R&D. These things are definitely correlated with patenting. So it's a reasonable measure going back to Gorillacus and all these people who've been in innovation for a while. There's there's a lot of attempts to kind of correlate patents with R&D and things like that. So you do see a positive relationship, but it certainly misses kind of some of these policy driven changes and kind of what's patentable and what's not patentable.
2: And then also, I guess, possible changes in the defensive use of
1: yeah, hundred percent. I mean, we do see policy changes there around what you can defend or not defend. There's a famous decision recently called the Alice decision in patenting, which is talking about business method patents. So, business method patents used to be easier to defend after the Alice decision; they're not. And so, those changes can definitely have an effect. So, yeah, patents are. I think it's kind of the best measure we have. You can look at consistently over a long time period, but it definitely has limitations. I think one of the challenges in this space is trying to come up with better measures that are available over such a long time period that are kind of consistently measured. It's hard to measure variables consistently over this whole time period. If you just think about even things like, you know, education, we don't really have good education data before 1940 census really adds in the United States. So tracking something like education is really hard too. So I think it's a challenge in trying to build these long-term historical data series.
0: Yeah, it's flawed, except it's the best we have, right? I'm looking forward to in this literature, I think is some work on helping us understand kind of the long run dynamics, spatial dynamics, you know, the results that you guys are generating from this data in your paper. What else are you looking forward to in this literature?
1: I think going pushing on to Greg's questions there I think looking at the real economy you know we have a lot of measures of kind of how the innovation sector does within itself but how does technology transfer over to the real economy and how does it generate economic growth I think those are some of the big questions there in terms of like how do you make that transition and so there's a lot of delays in terms of technology transition there's a lot of frictions in that process and really at the end of the day if we're putting public spending into R&D and it's an area we invest a lot of money into we want to know how does this really affect economic growth. And I think the causal challenges are really tough to get the answer there. you know, R&D is responding to its best opportunities. People are investing when there's great technological opportunities. Probably those companies with those technologies would grow anyway. So sort of sorting those out and then especially over a longer time horizon. So I think it's a really fascinating area, but yeah, it's somewhere we're looking for more progress.
0: Great. That's our time, unfortunately, but it was a real pleasure to chat with you, Alex, about your work in this paper.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun.
0: Our next guests are Katherine Erickson and Allison Schroetzer. Catherine is Associate Professor at the University of California Davis. She has an article co author with Zachary Ward titled Immigrants and Cities During the Age of Mass Migration. Welcome, Catherine.
6: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Also joining us is Allison Schritzer. She's an Associate Professor at the University of Pittsburgh. Allison has an article with Tate Twinum and Randy Walsh titled Zoning and Segregation in Urban Economic History. Welcome back to the show, Allison. Thank you so much. So, Catherine and Allison, both of your articles overlap on issues of sorting and segregation patterns within cities. Given this, I thought it would be interesting to do a joint interview to try to draw out some of these connections. Let me start with Catherine by summarizing some of your article. So your article reviews the literature on immigration from Europe to the United States between 1850 and 1940. You cover three topics, segregation patterns within cities, the effects of immigrants on natives and political backlash to immigrants. Let's just start with the first thing, which is what should people know about the location patterns of European immigrants within U.S. cities in this period?
6: Yeah, I think it's interesting writing this because once you start thinking about immigration, you kind of sort of can't think about cities. So what we sort of see in terms of immigrant patterns in general is that immigrants are very urban. Um, They're much more likely to live in cities than and non-immigrants, that's sort of true throughout history. They're just constantly more likely to live there, and it's quite persistent. You can also sort of think about the segregation within cities. And so you see that immigrants are pretty segregated, and they're much more segregated than the native population. This changes over time as cities grow and as different immigrant groups come at different times in the history of the U.S., But for example, like if you think about sort of the old sending groups, sort of Northwest Europe, they start out really segregated when they're coming very early. They're coming in the 1850s, 1860s. They're quite segregated from the native population, but they actually sort of assimilate and they sort of become like not segregated at all by like the 1920s, 1930s. And so there's sort of this assimilation patterns within cities, even where you're by the second, third generation in particular, you just look just like everyone else. And this is different for, like, the sort of newer sending countries, you know, coming around 1900, they sort of start out super segregated, and then they become a little bit less, but they sort of haven't had enough time to really fully assimilate by the time we sort of have to cut off the data in 1940. So I think, like, if you extrapolate forward, it seems like as groups have been here longer, they do sort of seem to at least residentially assimilate segregation-wise.
0: So there's this sort of, like, the pattern of initial segregation followed by assimilation after a couple generations. I'll also give you a chance to explain what we know about the political response to immigration in this period, particularly at the local or city level.
6: Yeah, I mean, there's been a few papers recently looking at political backlash. I think it's all sort of motivated based on some of Claudia Golden's work back in the 1990s, where she looked at sort of, you know, support in Congress among representatives for closing the borders, which is sort of the ultimate political response that happened in the 1920s. So she sort of sees that, yeah, if you've got sort of a U-shaped pattern. If you've got sort of middle number of immigrants, your congressional representative is going to vote for restriction. So this has been sort of thought about. So the, Marco Tablini's got another paper that says, you know, even if immigrants are coming in, again, sort of the early 20th century, they're not harming Native workers, particularly in his data, they seem to actually be complements and be helping Native workers. But there is a sort of political backlash to it at the city level where they start restricting things they start voting for sort of more anti-immigrant policies, which is it's kind of an interesting like conundrum that they're actually good economically, but politically, there's this huge backlash against them. And then like lastly, you can sort of see this going back in history. So I have a paper on the Know Nothing Party, which was sort of the first anti-immigrant party in the 1850s. And so they sort of take over the Northeast. And again, it's these places that are receiving a lot of Irish and are sort of have, the types of jobs that Irish are moving into feel super threatened and sort of even though there's not much evidence of economic harm. It seems that there really is a big backlash to large immigrant flows coming into the U.S.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to think about like similar political dynamics in response to other migrations today or, or perhaps the Great Migration. So that leads me to Allison's paper. So, Alison, let me ask about your essay, which my take is that I think the th- thesis of this essay is that we need a better understanding of land use regulation as a factor in shaping segregation patterns within U.S. cities. Can you expand on that a little bit about what you mean and what argument you're making?
7: Sure. It was interesting to be asked to write a review essay on the relationship between zoning and segregation because, as you said, I feel the bottom line is that we don't know. And, you know today, just a, a cursory glance over the newspapers or even briefings coming out from the White House there's this almost received wisdom that zoning is driving racial segregation today, and that this is the most important tool now that many of the tools that have been used to enforce racial segregation in the past have now been dismantled. And really, as I dug through the literature, I'm just not sure that we know that. And a large part of the reason is that it's so difficult to observe the zoning environment in cities going back in time. And and so that's sort of my call for future research is to understand that relationship better, mainly by building better data.
0: Yeah, I think that that's great. And I make this is clearly, we always need more research on these topics. Right? <laughs> Just thinking about Catherine's summary of kind of what we know about the political backlash to European immigration, it seems like one challenge in studying zoning or land use regulation in particular, is that there's all these other factors which can be adjusted. And so thinking about Laura Durenicourt's paper, right? Some of the political backlash to the Great Migration was in the context of public services or safety. And so it's hard to tell the complete story looking at a single political factor in isolation.
7: I agree with that completely. And land use regulation is always the de jure race-blind Genteel policy that's just about allowing homeowners to control the character of their neighborhood. It's not sort of the obvious culprit for for promoting or maintaining racial segregation, something like pouring money into policing services or disinvesting from schools in particular neighborhoods. These seem like more obvious culprits. You know, I think one of the challenges going forward is to the extent that there has been research in economic history on zoning, it's really been focused on cities like an individual city, sort of what Alora was looking at. And a lot of the concern about the way that zoning is maintaining segregation today is really a story about what's going on between jurisdictions, between municipalities. And so I think one of the challenges now is how do we understand the difference between the land use environment in cities and the land use environment in suburbs? And then, you know, this goes back to the data issues. There's some effort now to make sort of like a zoning atlas where you can observe zoning stringency in sort of a cross-section today. And, and even that's hard to put together. It's just sort of a, an inherently difficult thing to study, whereas some of these other government factors like schooling or policing, they're sort of easier to observe.
0: The other thing that kind of is brought to my mind in comparing these two migration episodes is that you know European immigrants had this option available to them of avoiding political responses by assimilation by more or less becoming white, which was not an option for many of the African-American migrants during the Great Migration. Maybe that's one reason why studying these political factors is much more salient. They may have been much more salient for the experience of African-American U.S. cities.
7: I agree with that. I don't know if Catherine has anything to add there. Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult for African-Americans to assimilate into The fabric of cities, the way that even Southern, Eastern Europeans were able to the 1940s, the World War II era. Of course, Catherine is the expert on this. You know, groups that were considered to be very much the other, unassimilable into American society, fought in World War II and came back and bought houses in good neighborhoods in the 1950s and you know, after that point really weren't considered to be a threat by by sort of American elites. And we're never going to be able to see that same process play out for African-Americans. Well, maybe we will. Maybe I'm being overly pessimistic. Having studied this for a century, uh, some things haven't really gotten better.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's always been something that's been so interesting to me that as you know so we've got these immigrants who we see as the other sort of like non-american non-white but as you get the great migration all of a sudden they're more similar to the to the population that lives in the north whereas you get black americans moving now the immigrants can sort of move towards being americanized and i think that it's a consequence of the great migration largely you've got another group you can blame for whatever you want to blame them for then you sort of the next group gets incorporated I think Marco
7: Tabellini and yeah, yeah, they actually have a paper looking at this that that black immigration helps the social position of of white ethnics. So mm-hmm. some attempts in economic history to quantify to quantify that phenomenon precisely.
6: Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, that's great. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Catherine and Allison, for joining us. And I'm looking forward to more work in this area.
7: Thanks so much, Jeff. Yeah, thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to part two of our special series on urban economics and history. Special thanks to the participants featured on this episode. Brian Beach, Dan Bogart, Bob Margot, Alex Wally, Catherine Erickson, and Alison Scherzer. For Greg Schill, I'm Jeff Wynn. The producer of our show is Skylar Powell. And our theme music is by Alexander Kultsoff, Additional Sounds by Inspector J. Check the show notes for links to the articles discussed on the show.
1: And let us know what you thought
0: on Twitter. The show's handle is at greg is at greg underscore shill and i'm at jeff Arden. if you don't already please subscribe to Dusty speaking wherever you hear podcasts and please take a second to rate and review the show as well it helps other listeners discover our show finally the views expressed on today's show are those of participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the federal reserve bank of philadelphia the federal reserve system or any of the other institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated